how are you guys? Good to see you. Why don't you open up in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Not sure if you were thinking I'd preach from there or not this morning, seeing that's just the next passage that we're coming to. And let me encourage you to do this. I know we, we're always moving so quickly through our lives these days that maybe we get used to coming to church. We'll just read it off the screen. We're not going to really open up and look at anything. I think you want to look at your Bibles when you have a chance to just stare at God's word. Be in this moment. Be fully here. Let God speak to you. So whether you've got an electronic Bible that you're using or a written, published Bible like, like this one, get, get, this, get these passages in front of you. Um, I had pondered whether knowing this service would be on the uh, tail end of a national election, whether I should be preaching a message about uh, politics and the election, etc. And uh, had certainly considered that for a good while, but just didn't feel like that was the Lord's direction for us to steer out of 1 Corinthians. But one thing I do want to notice this morning you know, we're just going to go into the next set of verses here in 1 Corinthians. And I just want us to also, though, see the relevance of the next set of verses to the way life is feeling for us right now, to the setting that we find ourselves in on the post-election side of things. Um, all right, so without me exploring the various political views and the outcome of the election. That probably maybe a message at some point would be helpful to address a little bit of that. But the title of the message today is Life Lived in the Shadow of Death. And you'll see why it's titled that way from 1 Corinthians 15. But there's this thing about death, and I want us to see it a little more fully from Scripture. Death is, is more than just the event that takes place at the end of our lives, that we have a date and we put it on a tombstone. Death is the end of things. Death is the loss of things. Death is the destruction of things that we equate with life, that we equate with good things. So I, I know this, I've already gotten some emails and some texts from folks after the election became final that uh, for some folks, the, the feel right now is our nation is moving into a, a period where some things that, that, that I call good could get lost. They, they could die in the coming years. Um, just views of people that are going to be in power, policies and laws that could be getting put in place have many folks feeling like, okay, uh, you know, this was the saying before this election came, America is on the ballot, right? That, and you probably heard that phrase, America is on the ballot. And otherwise, our way of life, the systems and, and ideas that formulate and create the way in which we live, capitalism is on the ballot. Is that going to be in the future of our country? Are we going to do something different? Morals are on the ballot. Are, are we going to lose morality, right? So all this moment for us is a looking into the next four years and saying, are some things that I value that I think are good for me and my family and my future, are, are some of these things about to die? Or, well, that's what it is to live in the shadow of death. And the Bible doesn't mind bringing up that subject. The Bible doesn't mind informing us that you and I do live in the shadow of death. That's what Psalm 23 brings up. 
to us. They, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Right? So there's an acknowledgement in the Bible that you and I actually do walk through these valleys of shadows of death. And I know and, and today's going to feel a little bit morbid as we explore death the way in which 1 Corinthians 15 presents it. It might feel like something and say, hey, man, could, could you just choose a more positive topic? Can we talk about something else? Um, the Bible doesn't deny. Part of your life is going to be spent walking through valleys that have the shadow of death in them. You can't wish that away. can't close your eyes and act as though it's not real. You can't positive it away. Life is going to feel like you are standing in the shadow of death. And so there'd be more personal issues for all of us that bring us into those shadows that make us feel like something, I could lose something here. I feel threatened by something. Um, it's interesting if we're talking about transitional governments and changes of government here in the United States, you know, what's not featured because politics really isn't featured in the Bible and governmental structures aren't featured in the Bible. But what you wouldn't know from reading 1 Corinthians is one of the biggest transfers of power had just taken place when this letter was written. Sorry, this letter is written about 55 AD. In October of 54 AD, they had a transfer of power from one emperor to another. Now, they did it a little different than the way we do things. They went from Claudius to a man named Nero in October of 54. Now, most of us know something about Nero. We know that this guy is bizarre, right? So what an adventure they're about to have on their hands. What you don't know is Claudius had his own issues. Matter of fact, Claudius had his own issues within his own household. His wife poisoned him and killed him so that Nero could become the next emperor. So they did transition of power a little bit different back then than we do it today, hopefully. Um, But what a moment for them. Right? You live under the thumb of the Roman Empire. You know something about heavy-handed authoritarian governments that jump into your life, inflict their will upon you, change tax structures, threaten you, uh, make life to feel unsafe and tentative and harmful. And you go from Claudius to Nero, who's going to ratchet everything up, and it's all going to get worse in that moment. And this is the audience Paul's writing to in 1 Corinthians. So it's not as though the Bible doesn't engage politics. It just doesn't feature it, right? But I want us to look at, as we read through this passage, this is, this is how the word of God explains that, that you and I live in the shadow of death, but God has a remedy for that. There's a remedy for this shadowy existence. And that's what we're going to read about. So let me turn you on to this Pay attention as we move through this. There's a bit of a table of contents here where Paul's going to stand back from the human experience and he's going to say, let me take you all the way back to the beginning. Way back in the beginning, there was this guy named Adam once upon a time. And what entered into his life was this, this character called death. And death was going to stay in the story. But let me tell you the whole story here. And he's going to install a table of contents, if you will. Here's going to be chapter 1, and there's another chapter coming later, and then there's this chapter at the end. And it's very important for you and I to understand, what chapter are we in right now? Where are we in this story that God is describing in this passage? So let's pick up, starting in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read just through verse 28. Paul says, for as by a man 
came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, right later on, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, what a thought that there is coming a day that in the human heart, God would be all in all. No competing thrones, nothing else to be afraid of, no wandering affections. God would be our all in all of us. Lord, we long for that day, but this table of contents tells us that we're not there yet. So God, would you give us wisdom for where we are today? Help us to see what you wanted us to see about your unfolding story that will get us there one day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me back up to verse 21 and see something. There is chapter one here, there is the introduction of death. It would be wrong for us to assume death has always been on the scene because death has not always been on the scene. Death shows up at some point in the human experience. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Right, so this thing that you and I know, we know something about death. You know, if we're really, really young, we barely paid attention to the fact that people around us die, right? We have relatives that die, but when you're really, really young, you kind of don't even pay attention to that a whole lot. But as you, as you move through life, death shows up on the stage of our lives. And, and it brings drastic impact to us. The loss that we experience, just the rawness of death, where here somebody meaningful, uh, affectionately connected, the object of our love, a sense of dependence upon them as part of our world, and then death comes and suddenly they are not anymore. They're ripped away. And, and that leaves an impact on our lives. And, and not only that, it, it installs something, it installs an awareness that you can lose stuff in your life. Things that were alive just a moment ago can be lost and they can depart from your life. So this concept of death is not just a human death thing. It's like things come to an end in our lives and we lose them. And, and, and that's a hard thing to get our minds around. And so we ask, well, where did that come from? Well, if we trace the DNA of this thing all the way back to its origins, we're going to find it came into the human race through Adam. Death entered the human race through Adam 
it wasn't always there. And let me just point that out as something significant to you. Because at some point, you're going to be working through this issue of death. And you're going to be taking it up with God. And are, are you going to be angry at him? Are you going to blame him? Are you going to do something in this category? And this is helpful to understand where did this come from, right? Well, it kind of slipped into the DNA of man, and now it's part of who we are. But here's the origins. Charles Spurgeon points out, he says, it was not, this death was not in the natural constitution of humanity that man should die. For the first man, Adam was made a living soul. So God's original creation, the garden is created and Adam is created and God breathes life into him. Death is not present. God's original creation is a man and a woman who are going to live forever. They're going to be married forever. They're going to know God forever. They're just going to live. There's no death in the equation here. There's just life. Spurgeon goes on and says, death may well be counted as a foe. Because it entered into the world and became the master over the race of Adam through our worst enemy, sin. It came not in accordance to the course of nature, but according to the course of evil. Death came not in by the door, but it climbed up some other way. And we may therefore rest assured that it is a thief and a robber. So when you and I go to to look at this character that's entered our story and he travels with every human being through life, who is this guy? Well, he's an imposter. He broke in. And notice how he broke in, because this might inform you and I in terms of how we get around sin. How did he break into humanity? He broke in through sin. He used sin as a vehicle to get into our world. And you know, it's interesting when the Bible describes sin to us sometimes, it, it talks about sin giving birth to death. Keep that in mind because sin's gonna show up in your life today in the same way that it showed up in the Garden of Eden and it introduced death into Adam. It's gonna introduce death to you as well. But it's gonna come looking to make a deal. It's gonna come offering you something. It's gonna offer you a shortcut. It's going to offer you a way of doing something that's easier. It's going to offer something less challenging. It's going to offer something that doesn't require so much faith and trust in God. It's going to offer some kind of pleasure that you can have right now. Just remember, sin is the doorway through which death enters into situations. When you open that door, you open the door for death to come in and begin to destroy things in your life. So don't, don't, Don't enter into partnership with sin. It's a doorway that death likes to use. Let me point out something else about death. This is what I mean by the shadow of death. For the most part, death, in and of a concept, it's that date, that event that's going to happen at some particular moment that's going to get put on your tombstone. person lived from this day until this day, and that's when death happened for them. But there's this shadow of death that cast its shadow. Here's the event, but the way in which the light hits it, it cast a shadow over our whole lives. So death, though it's an event, it is also a presence that interferes with us. And Hebrews 2 really picks this up in its language. Hebrews 2.14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, our, our Messiah, the one who's come to remedy this, he likewise partook of the same things that through 
death, right? Jesus is going to enter into death. Through death, he might destroy the one who, listen, has the power of death. So notice these other things. There's death in this passage, but there's the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So this is an interesting thing that death does in our lives. We, we, we know the reality for the most part. We're kind of safe to guess that that moment, that actual event of death is going to show up for us. You know, unless there's some crazy accident. At 70, 80, 90 years old, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come later. More than likely, that's going to be the moment when death shows up. But this passage puts us in touch with the fact that, no, death is going to show up in your life. The event will be later. But the fear of death, that's going to interact with your life in a way that creates something called lifelong slavery. You're going to think about death. It's going to threaten you. You're going to wake up in the morning in fear of somehow death showing up and taking from you that which is good. You're going to live your life in that condition. Right, Charles Spurgeon, those of you who don't know Charles, Charles is a English pastor from the late mid to late 1800s in London, England. He had a colorful way with words. He describes death on the scene of our lives this way. He says, they can enjoy nothing. Because the darkness of death's shade lies across the landscape. The ghost of death haunts them. The skeleton sits at their table. They're mournfully familiar with the shroud, the coffin, and the sepulcher. And they are familiar with these, not as with friendly provisions for a good night's rest, but as the cruel ensigns of a dreaded foe. This makes death an enemy with emphasis. When our fears enable him thus to spoil our life. Oh, no, no, no. The event might not be for years from now. You and I might not actually personally taste death for years from now. But he has this strange ability to spoil our lives. When death rides his pale horse roughshod over all terrestrial joys, he makes us feel that it is a poor thing to live because the threat of life is so soon to be cut. Right? We feel the sense of vulnerability. We have watched this play out. We watched the effect on people's lives. That suddenly, someone's gone. Suddenly, something is over. Something that was so good and so sweet is gone. And death rides through our lives. Matthew McCullough, a couple of years ago, wrote a book called Remember Death. I know everybody rushed right out to buy it just based on the title, Right? It actually is a very helpful book. He says, even if your life plays out in precisely the way you imagine for yourself in your wildest dreams, death will steal away everything you have and destroy everything you accomplish. Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> right? We live in this shadow of death. If I didn't say that to you, something inside of you knows that already. You feel it. It casts a shadow on the permanence of things and the meaningfulness of things in our lives. It needs to get solved somehow. And listen, the Bible, it's not like the Bible doesn't sound this way. The Bible sounds this way, right? Psalm 103, verse 14, describes our existence this way. He says, for he knows 
our frame, right? God knows about us. He remembers that we are, we're dust. It's a vulnerability to our existence. We're just, we're just dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. At least I like the word flourishes is in there, right? So, hey, hey, man is flourishing. But do you ever see the way the flower of a field flourishes? Right? This is the way the flower of a field flourishes. You know, if you want to get on a horse, drive off into some beautiful countryside where wildflowers are growing. You go out there, you stare, you find one. It's tall, it's beautiful, it's moving in the wind. It's an awesome thing. And you come back a week later and it's gone. It flourished for a very brief moment. And then it was gone. And then it says this in verse 16, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. The next wind that blows over that part of the valley where that beautiful little flower was growing won't even know it existed. That's how the Bible presents life. It says, did you see the fragility of life? Listen, if you've had to bury relatives and sort through the end of their lives, you, you know something about that verse. That verse uh, came to life for me in a way that I wish I could say I enjoyed. I didn't enjoy it, actually. It was a bit of a haunting verse for me. Um, a few years ago, those of you guys who are, are new to the church, uh, several years ago, Gina and I walked through a period of time where we just were losing our family to death, right? On her side of the family, we lost two close relatives. And then right after that, I lost my whole family. My mom, my dad, and my brother died all in a two-year period. And, you know, during that time, I'm settling their estates and I'm digging through the boxes in the attic and I'm pulling out records and I'm looking at things that my dad did at work and things he accomplished and things that he owned and he's gone. He lived a long time. He lived 96 years. But there was this strange reality that all that you accomplished, you're done here. In a few years, apart from me and a couple of close family members, no one will even know your name. No matter how important you were at work, no matter what you owned, no matter what you accomplished in your life, the wind is going to blow over this place and it won't even know you were here. Somebody else will live in your house. Somebody else will take up the job that you once had and you won't even be remembered. This is the way the Bible presents the fragileness of life. There is something about getting in touch with these realities that the Bible actually wants us to get in touch with them. Paul makes this point in Corinthians about death having spread to all men, trying to awaken in us the sense that death is on your agenda. It's casting a shadow on your own life right now. Do you have a solution for that? That's why he brings it up, right? This is a chapter about resurrection. This is a chapter where the apostle Paul is having to write to an audience and say, hey, I need to talk to you about the resurrection. Remember I told you that story about the gospel of first importance, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he appeared to all these people. Remember I told you all that? Can I just sell you on how important the resurrection is? That's what he's trying to do right here. Okay, Paul, go ahead, try to sell us. Can I tell you about this guy named Death who's been around since Adam and he's coming for you? This is how he sells us on the resurrection. 
Matthew McCullough goes on in his book and he says, you need to recognize you are going to lose everything you love in this world before you will hope in an inheritance kept in heaven for you. You and I love this place too much and we love our stuff too much to just transfer our hope outside of it. You're going to need to be convinced and given a reason to do that. If we want to see the beauty of Jesus, we must first look carefully and honestly at death. I appreciate the way Walter Wanderham captured this connection in a wonderful book on death and joy written more than 25 years ago. Listen to what he says. If the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives... That's our fault, not the gospels. For if death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Worship and proclamation and even faith itself take on a dreamlike, unreal air. And Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten. Speaking of insurance policies, could you even find your insurance policies right now if I told you to go pull them up? Every once in a while, you know, when people die around you, I have this moment sometimes like, would my wife even know I have insurance? Would she have any idea where to find the policies? Do I know where they are? It's like, I just know drafted out of my account is a monthly charge that goes to pay for something called a life insurance policy. Uh, that's about all I know. You know. What if your relationship with Jesus gets treated that way? Well, you know, when I was 13, I walked an aisle and I asked Jesus to forgive me. So, you know, hey, if I were to die, you know, I'm covered. I'm good. I'm going to go to heaven. I, you know, I prayed the prayer. You know. Is that what this is supposed to be like? Just some kind of insurance policy that, that when that event called death actually does arrive on the calendar and, and I breathe my last, in that moment, the insurance policy kicks in and Jesus' resurrection suddenly becomes relevant to my life. Now, whatever Jesus did, now it makes sense. Really? Is that what this is about? No, what Jesus' resurrection does, it's a remedy for the shadow of death. That sense of fear and the power that death gets over our lives, that we're going we're gonna to be the victims of something outside of our power. Something's going to take from us the things that are precious. Anything good in my life right now could die, and, and I could be vulnerable to what? The God of resurrection is in your life. He brings life out of the dead. That's who he is. Do you, do you have a relationship with him that's every day? Or did you just sign something in a prayer one time that's going to rescue you in the day that you expire and going to give you resurrection life then? So be really careful. If you have a signed a document mentality, you probably don't really have a relationship with God. God's not a document. He's a living person. He comes to settle this issue of our fear of death and its power over us by himself. Not by some policy that we stick on a shelf somewhere and we think, oh, when we die, I'm good. No, he's come to us in person, right? Here's the the chapter in this table of contents called the remedy of death, right? So Paul introduces us. Hey, guys, I don't know if everybody knows this, but everybody's got a problem here. Death came to all through one man. Didn't matter whether you brought it. 
Doesn't matter whether you think you've been bad enough of a person. Because a lot of people have a, a hard time coming to God because they don't think they're that bad. I don't think I'm that bad. Uh, no matter how bad you think you are, in your DNA is death. It's in you. You might be a nice person on your way to dying, or you might be a real jerk on your way to dying, and people will be glad when you die, but you might be a person everybody's going to be sad about, but you're still going to die. Death is equally coming for you. It's not about how moral you are, how good you are. You were raised a certain way, even tried to be religious. Death is going to take your life, and it's going to threaten everything about your life on your way there. You got a solution for that? Well, Paul's solution is, hey, you know what? Death came through one man. The resurrection from the dead, it also comes through one man. He's the solution, right? Hebrews 2 again. He himself partook of flesh and blood, right? Why did Jesus, the eternal spiritual God, put on human flesh, you know, zip himself up in a suit that had a heartbeat and blood that could be shed and a life that could die. Why did he do that? So that he could die. So that he could travel into death itself, right? That's Hebrews 2. He himself partook of flesh and blood. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. All right, so here's my question. Wherever you are, wherever you guys watching at home, maybe just tuning in, curious, at some point, you and I have to come to a solution about this thing called death. What's your solution? Or better yet, who is your solution? Is it, is it Muhammad? Right? Religious leader? Islam? Spreading throughout the world? Does Islam, does Muhammad claim to have the power over death and the devil? Does Muhammad claim that? He doesn't claim that. He doesn't claim to have resurrection power that he could give to you that will defeat death. When death comes for you, I will raise you from the dead. And when the shadow of death is upon you, my resurrection power will be upon you. Islam doesn't offer that. Buddhism doesn't offer that. Confucian doesn't offer that. Science doesn't offer that. All the ones that's so funny, it's like years ago preaching, all of those things, people would have gone, yeah, I know something about Buddhism. I know Confucian. I, don't, I haven't heard his name in forever. What's he all about? Science. Can I use that one? Science. Because every time you hear a media person stand up, we're listening to the science, we're following the science, the science, the science, the science. The science is a new God on the scene. Is science going to rescue you from death? I don't, as far as I know, there's not a vaccine for death coming. Well, we're trying to find one. We're trying to figure out a way that we can live forever. Anybody got any hope that's ever going to happen? Death is coming and science won't stop it. But there's one. There's one who entered into death and came out of it victoriously and has the ability to transfer his life to those who trust him. That's one and only one who can do that. But let me ask you, what, 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 what is your remedy for death? The event, yes, but the shadow that it casts as well. Because you get occupied and fearful about that event that's coming and that loss that goes with it. How about this? I think the number one remedy for most people to death is to just ignore it and distract yourself from it with everything in your power. 
right? Create a world that's got daily routines in it that are so busy. Find something that you're passionate about and invest yourself in it and get your life moving in that direction. Live for a dream, man, focus on that. Go after it with all your might. Distract ourselves from all the issues that come in our lives through entertainment and travel and staring at a device all day long, just passing time, just passing time, just staring at something else. What else is out there? What can I look at? Where where is there a movie? Where can I go see? Or maybe just numb yourself through substance abuse. What are all those things? That they're a way to keep death at a distance, to keep the noise and the fear and the pressing that everything about your life I'm gonna take from you. Your health, I'm gonna take it. The people in your life, I'm going to take them. All that you've accomplished, all that you've built, all that energy and ambition that built something in your world, I'm going to take it. And you can't shut him up because he is, and you know it. So distraction, or, or maybe this as a remedy to death. How about we just create a fairy tale ending? How about we just do that? How about we just make something up? So what's going to happen to you when you die? Well, I don't know. You know, all dogs go to heaven, so I'll probably go to heaven. And don't get me wrong, I don't think I'm all that great, but, you know, I think that's just kind of what happens, right? Huh? Cute idea. Where'd you get that idea from? I don't know, it just kind of makes sense to me. All right, so you made it up? So you made up your own fairy tale ending? So you're going to live a life as a, as a creature that's under an existence, and you're going to make up your own fairy tale ending, and you just grabbed it out of nowhere? Really? Well, no, I mean, I didn't originate it. Somebody else came up with it. Oh, really? Who? Who who came up with that idea that everybody just goes to heaven in the end? Or, well, you know, uh, I think you just, I think when you die, you just fall asleep. You know, it's like just going into this sleep. You're just in a state of sleep. Really? Anybody else going with you on that one? Just making that up? Yeah. But would it shock you if I were to tell you that there's a creator in the universe who lays claim to being the creator? And then he reveals himself in his creation, reveals himself through people, he reveals himself in a book, and and he puts on display his resume. He does stuff that says, hey, I want you to notice how I have the ability to not be subject to creation, but to have creation be subject to me. Jesus comes, overturns powers and principalities and authorities. Where there's sickness, he heals people. Where there's death, he raises them from the dead. He does miracles that nobody could explain. He overthrows the powers of this world to show who he is. The Bible's full of prophecies. The Bible was written down. God saying, hey, I'm going to tell this guy what's going to happen 100 years from now, 700 years from now. And I'm going to tell him this. I'm going to tell him that. Why? So that when it comes to pass, you'll be able to say, that dude's God really is God. There's evidence here. That the God of the universe has actually revealed himself to be the God of the universe. And then he sends his son and Jesus Christ bears witness that this God really is God and raises him from the dead. And, and Jesus taught things. The Bible says some things. Can I tell you, it doesn't present that fairy tale ending. When death comes, we stand before the God of creation in judgment. That God in that moment will want an account for our lives. What did we believe about him? Did we look to him to save us or not? That's going to be in that moment. Well, Keith, is that a fairy tale? You just make that up? No, I didn't make it up. 
Trust me, if I were to make something up, I wouldn't make that up. I would make it, you know, more like a party and, hey, everything's fine. Listen, you didn't do well, but you know what? It's cool. Everybody gets into the theme park. Come on, man. It's heaven. That'd be the story I'd make up. That's not the story that's here. So this death is going to put us face to face with the living God. Well, what am I going to do in that moment? Well, hopefully we haven't just ignored God or ignored his gospel. And according to this plan, uh, death entered through this man. Then there was this resurrection. And then he's going to say something here. And this is the part I want us to catch today, especially for many of us who are walking with God. We're not trying to figure out whether we believe God or not. We have believed God. But we found it very hard to live the life in this moment that's before us. And I, I hear that a lot. And I get that. So here's, here's we are. Chapter 1, introduction to death. And then there's this other phrase that he uses here in verse 23. But each in his own order. There's an order. God is doing something in remedying this death issue in a particular order, in a particular way. Right? So verse 23 through 26 unfolds or unpacks this order, this remedy of God, right? In verse 23, it says, Christ is the first fruits, right? We go all the way back to Adam. Death is traveling with man. But then Christ comes and he's the first fruits. He's the first one resurrected from the dead. He's the proof that God can make good on them. And that's why Paul starts the chapter. Jesus Christ has been resurrected. He's already happened. And he's appeared to this person, that person, 500 other people and these. And then lastly, Paul says to me. So there's proof. God actually does defeat death in the person of Jesus Christ. Then verse 23, then at his coming, something is going to happen. Those who belong to Christ are going to be resurrected. So you have the resurrection of Christ here, and then days, months, years, until another event on the calendar when Christ returns. This is how God tells us, hey, live in this moment with this awareness. There's coming a day when Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to gather those who belong to him. Those who belong to him. Everyone? No. Those who belong to him are going to be resurrected in that day. I mean, read the Bible for what it's saying. Why doesn't it just say everybody? Because it doesn't mean everybody. It means those who belong to him those who have put their faith and their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ in that day, on that calendar day, will be resurrected. And then verse 24 says, then comes the end where God sums everything up. All right, so here's God's table of contents. Can God actually make good on this stuff? This is God actually saying, hey, this is how your life unfolds. Right, got this sin thing entered in through Adam. It affected everybody. You get that. Here it came to you. Look at you right there. Then back here, Jesus came, and then he was resurrected. And then in the future, let me tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future. Jesus is coming back. You sure? Yeah, I'm God. Jesus is coming back. And then the end, right there, well, maybe it could go on. Maybe it could last a little bit longer. I mean, are you sure, God? Do you doubt this story when Paul decrees that God says, then the end? Do you go, uh, that's what you say? 
All right, so those of us who trust God and you've looked at the scriptures and the spirit of God bears witness with you, we all say, no, no, God said it. That really is the way it's going to happen. All right, can I just tell you that there's some implications for that, if you really do believe that? Right, look for this paragraph in your outline. God has sovereignly reigned over every event, every moment, every fallen and rebellious particle in every created thing in such a way that assures his outcome will take place exactly as he said it would. What if the devil really gets his A game going? And what if, what if this is like a Marvel movie and the devil finds some secret weapon, so secret that God didn't even know it existed? And he pulls it out a thousand years from now and he uses it against God and against his purpose. What if that happens, huh? Then can you, you're going to tell me that the end is still going to show up exactly the way God said it would? I wouldn't be able to tell you that, would I? Because I don't know what that weapon would do to God. If there's some secret activity that God doesn't know about, if there's some power out there that God doesn't know about, if there's a little tiny little quark smaller than an atom floating around out there that can turn into something that God doesn't know about and doesn't have any control over. Who's to say this thing ends the way it does? It could go sideways and none of this could ever happen. There could be a different God for all you know. The whole universe could get turned upside down and this is just wishful thinking on God's part. Are you following me? If there's anything about my life or your life that for a second gets out of God's control, this is just a big question mark. It's no longer a certainty. Because if that got out of his control, what else might get out of his control? Now listen, this is what you and I do, right? When death shows up and it casts its shadow and something bad happens in our lives and we take God to court, we're questioning whether he was in control of that. God, I don't know. That was pretty bad. I don't, I don't get the feel that you were in control of that. Can I just tell you, that's a bigger thought than what you're just throwing out on the table. Because if he was not in control of that, what else is he not in control of? And he talks a good game here because he acts as though he actually is going to, you know, everything's going to come to an end exactly the way he said it. And he's going to defeat every enemy. He's going to pull everything underneath his authority. How do we know he can do that? Because he's in control of everything. Everything. There's nothing outside of God's sovereign reign. It's interesting, this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think sometimes you and I are, are, are just kind of okay with the idea that, okay, yeah, God's sovereign, all those big concepts and words with this big calendar idea you're throwing out there. He's sovereign over the universe. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. But what about my day-to-day stuff? That's where I have a problem believing in God's sovereignty, don't you? Right? I, yeah, I get somehow in the end this all works out because God's sovereign. But what about my daily stuff? What about my life going sideways? Is God all over that too? Is he planning and involved? Well, listen to this, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16. 
Paul says, we do not lose heart, right? This is daily spaces. This is stuff that's in your life. Death in its shadow comes and we're threatened to lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. What is that? That's the shadow of death. That's my body, you know, when it has its moments where the dashboard lights come on. I didn't have as many dashboard lights lit up. Now I'm driving a vehicle now where the check engine light stays on. Um, when I was in my 30s and 40s, I didn't have as many dashboard lights on. I got my 50s and all of a sudden dashboard lights started popping up all over the place, letting me know this is broken. That's on its way to being broken. Hey, have you thought about the fact that you're going to die? When enough of these lights come on, your body stops working. This is what I'm thinking in my 50s. I don't know what you guys are thinking like, but the dashboard lights are going off, right? I, I get that. Though our outer self is wasting away. Shadow of death, right? If you knew, if you knew, you still had the deal Adam had, you're going to live forever. Life is in you and you're going to live forever. And you woke up one morning and you just, you know, you just did this as you stare in the mirror and you went like, hmm, there's a lump right here. That wasn't there. I've never noticed that before. What's this all about? If no one, if you'd never seen anybody die, that wouldn't be the shadow of death for you. It'd just be like, well, I guess I'll just live forever with a lump. (laughs) Didn't have that lump before, but okay. From now on, I get a lump. Why are you concerned about that lump? Because you've seen death. And now you're standing in the shadow of death. And lumps could mean death could be a lot closer than you thought. Right? Well, listen to this passage. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, don't have to deny it, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All right, now follow the construction here. This is super important. This is a moment that gets the label affliction. Right now, it's momentary. It's in this moment with us and it's an affliction. It is life going sideways on us in a way that that we're not, this isn't good. I don't like this moment. This is an affliction. But then God turns around and says, but this thing that you just labeled affliction is working for us, some translations say, or producing, some translations say, or preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So this momentary sideways event is actually in God's plan working something that's eternal and purposeful. So you mean the sideways moments where things look bad, where death intrudes, where our hearts are broken and we can't understand this moment, that kind of affliction is not outside of God's control? No, more than that, God is actually working in that an eternal weight of glory. Listen, I got to see these moments in my life. I got to see the table of contents of God that everything does land exactly the way God says because in every moment, even in the affliction moments where I feel life in its worst feelings, I know that God is at work doing something eternal. Listen, for some, uh, the election that just took place, for some... Uh, the election is a losing heart moment. Some are tempted to lose heart because what they see is an outcome. 
it casts more of a shadow of death. There is, there is a fear that the future is not good. Things are going to get lost. Life is going to become hard and painful for myself, for my children. Death is sort of knocking at the door. And we're tempted to lose heart. But, but God has a way of being in afflictions for eternal purposes. I don't see this event simply through the, law, the, the eyes of the natural Neither should you see the other events in your life that way. Maybe the, the, the cancer diagnosis in 2019 that you may have received. The divorce in 2016 that came into your life and just rocked your world like a shadow of death was cast upon you. That affliction in that moment. The bankruptcy in 2020, as things just went bad and you lost your ability for your business to sustain and be able to pay bills and pay your employees. These are affliction moments. But what gets transferred in that moment is God, God in that moment, the God who predicts the future. Is he in that moment with you? Yes. Every affliction, God is working in it for eternal purposes. This is how God is. And so for these verses to find comfort for us, we need to recognize where we are, right? There are moments where it is going to feel like God is nowhere to be found and it's out of control. That's the shadow of death. Death is not gone. He still cast a shadow. You will come under that shadow. But here, here's, the, here's the thing I want to make sure we own today. Verse 24 describes God's timetable when he says, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Right, is that going to happen? Maybe. No, no, that's going to happen. Jesus is going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Verse 24 after destroying every rule and every authority and power until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then at the end, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. All right, can you just ball all those thoughts together real quick? You have a kingdom's going to be given over. Rulers and authorities and powers are going to be destroyed. They're going to be put under his feet. And then finally, death is going to be the last enemy to be destroyed. That's all happening in this little window of these table of contents. Jesus came, defeated death, came out of it through the resurrection. The next event is when he comes back. We are right in here right now. Where are these enemies? Where are these rulers and these powers? Where is death? Well, they're not done yet. And I don't, I don't know if theologically all of us get that. I think for some, there is this sense that, you know, the God who loves me would keep me from these things. The God who has compassion for my life, he would never let me go through this. Can, can, I, can I just tell you, you're describing heaven right now. That he would never let you go through that. You're exactly right in heaven. Would he let you go through it here? Yes. Didn't he say that in here? Yeah, I told you that there were still enemies on the field. I told you death was not taken off the field. Death could show up in your life tomorrow. 
for you or someone that you love dearly. And in that moment, I know, I know, listen, in that moment, depending on the circumstances and how they fall out, I'm going to be standing before God going, what is this? Right? We're going to turn to God and we're going to question something about him. In that moment, the God who said, you're not there yet. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Now, death is to be destroyed, but not till the last. You have many enemies who are not destroyed, and you have inbred sins not slain. What's that going to feel like when you wake up tomorrow? You have enemies in this world that are not destroyed. Now, they're on their way to being underneath the feet of Jesus in this chapter. And maybe some of them get there now. A few more tomorrow. Some of them right before the end. I don't know how that plays out. But I know they're still on the loose. And this thing called death is still part of this world until then. He's the last enemy to be destroyed. I have enemies and I have indwelling, inbred sins in me. I have enemies in me that work against me and against God's purpose. I'm going to wake up to them tomorrow morning and face them. Spurgeon says, look well to them. Until they are all gone, you must not expect death to be destroyed, for he is the last to die. If death is the last enemy, I do not think we have to fight with him now. We have other enemies who claim our valor and our watchfulness today. The present business of life, the present service of God and of his cause are our main concern And in attending to these, we shall as Christians be found best prepared to die. Let us then fight our adversaries in order and overcome them each in its turn. Let us then fight. How many of us feel like life is a lot harder than we thought it was going to be? Marriage seems a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. Raising children, extended family seems a lot harder. There's a lot of brokenness and conflict and people on the outs. You know, living in our country just seems a lot harder, amen, than you thought it was going to be. And I think it's going to get harder. Well, what's the deal? Did did God not make good? Did God drop the ball? I'm having a hard time trusting God because all this stuff is happening. Wait, 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 why? Why are we having a hard time trusting God? He said this was going to happen. Here's my commentary on why that feels this way. In your outline I wrote, popular Christianity feels like it's not prepared to fight. The popular theology of the last 30 years has been going on for a while has fostered a sense of heaven on earth expectations. Prosperity now and problem-free living is giving us a set of expectations that is making us disappointed with life. Right? We're no longer a people who, like your grandparents, lived through a lot of hard stuff and complained a lot less than all of us have. 
They just kind of, hey, we'll just do the best we can. It's just a different day. Today, we're disappointed with life. I want a refund. This is not the way I thought this was going to go. And I'm kind of angry about it. We're disillusioned with God. I thought God was good. I thought God loved me. I'm just confused by him now. We're distrusting of God. And we're distanced from God. Listen, when this gets bad in our hearts, you know what we start doing? We start protecting ourselves from God. I, I don't want to start looking to God because he'll just disappoint me again. You understand? I trusted God this way and I trusted God this way and I trusted God this way. And what happened? War, battle, and difficulty and struggle and fight. That's what happened. So I'm not doing that again. I, I'm not going to draw near to God and trust God. I'm just afraid I'm going to get hurt all over again. I would suspect this morning that there is a significant number of people. And when you came in this morning, I suspect you, you might be a person who comes in after the singing for reasons that you haven't figured out. When your heart wants to keep God at a distance, it's really hard to sing. It's something about singing, right? Singing is a vulnerability. Singing is an affection. So if you're here and you're not singing or you're avoiding that moment of singing, you might want to ask, am I afraid that God will disappoint me if I entrust myself to him? I'm going to give you this one last quote here. It's a, it's a long one. It's on your, the web page if you want to go look at it. It's a great source of meditation. I think the confusion about our theology has got to get fixed. We've got to be able to live in a moment where you are called on to fight. That's what you're called to do. You're called to fight in this moment. Right, so I'm going to give you this thought, and we're going to pray. And Keith, I don't know who's left with you. Come on up here. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says this. God's kingdom was what many Jews of Paul's day longed for. And we're right to assume that he grew up longing for it too. Paul certainly wanted the day that God's kingdom comes into this world with all of its misery. They imagined that God would become king over the whole world, restoring Israel to glory, defeating the nations that had oppressed God's people for so long, and raising all the righteous dead to share in the new world. Quite how this would all happen was seldom clear. That it would have to happen if God really was God, there could be no doubt. And the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth had revealed to Paul that it had happened at last. Though not at all in the way he had imagined. Right? Or for the disciples. Right? Do you remember Peter preached last week about the disciples on the road to Damascus who were wondering, we had hoped. Why do you sound so disappointed? Because it didn't turn out the way we thought exactly. And then they ask Jesus this question in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus reveals himself and his resurrection to them, they go, Is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Do you have any idea what they were asking for in that moment? Is it now that you finally come down and kick the butt of these stinking Romans who've been oppressing us for so long? And you make the nation of Israel to be a respected nation that can flourish without being taken advantage of, hurt by other people? Is it now, Jesus? That's what they're asking. It wasn't that time. And for them, that was disillusioning. Some of these guys asking that question, they're going to get killed and martyred. That's what's waiting for them. Instead of all God's people being raised at the end of history, one person had been raised in the middle of history. 
That was the shocking, totally unexpected thing. But this meant that the coming of God's kingdom was happening in two phases. When Paul talks about things happening in their proper order, right here, in verse 23, he has two things in mind. The order of events and the eventual order. The putting into shape that God intends to bring to the world. The order of events is explained first. Jesus, following his resurrection is already the Lord of the world, already ruling as king. Verse 25 is a clear statement, as anywhere in Paul, of what he means when calling Jesus the Messiah. He is God's anointed king, already installed in the world as the world's true Lord. Paul understands the present time as the time when Jesus is already reigning, right? This, this feels right. Jesus is already reigning, so therefore our life should be what? It should be different, pain-free maybe. But the purpose of his reign in this little interim time, the purpose of his reign to defeat all the enemies that have defaced, oppressed, and spoiled God's magnificent world and his human creatures in particular has not yet been accomplished. That table of contents points to a day that's coming when all the enemies will be put under Jesus' feet, when there will no longer be battles and fights to fight and opposition and powerful forces that come against us and death will no longer be on the field, but not yet. One day, this task will be complete. The final enemy, death itself, will be defeated and God will be all in all. There is an enemy inside of me that wants to make something else my all besides God. And I wake up to that stinking jerk every day. I long for the day when I wake up and my heart always fully, incessantly belongs to Christ. He is my delight. I have nothing else more important than him. I worship, delight, enjoy him 24-7, never with a competing moment for my heart to go to something else. But that is not this day. That day is coming, but it is not this day. So what do you and I do now? What do we do right now in this moment? Because, I, listen, I think some of us, and you've got to get in touch with this this morning. I'm going to let us pray for just a moment. Some of us feel like we want to ask God for a refund. God, I want my money back. I trusted you. I looked to you. It's been hard as hell. My life's been filled with difficult, difficult things. Okay. Did you expect it wouldn't be? Who told you that? Did you misread the Bible? Did you think heaven came early for you? It hasn't come early for any of us. We live in the not yet dimension. There is a plan that is unfolding and God clearly says it. And he says it all over the place. Right now is a moment for something from us, but it's not heaven. It's not a moment for us to pack up all of our gear and to put it away because we're finally on vacation. We've finally arrived at our destination. We can put our tools and our weapons away. 
No, we cannot. We're not there yet. Paul told Timothy this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He just described how people seek contentment in things that money can buy and ambitions of their own. And he says, no, no, no. As for you, flee those things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Look in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, fight. Fight in this hour. This is the hour to fight. This is the hour when enemies are still on the field, when opposition still exists, when the final enemy has not been put away yet. You're going to have to fight in this day. And since today is game day, I know the game's tonight, which means I can preach all afternoon and you won't miss any of the game. Um, let me use a game day illustration, right? I think I wrote this in your outline just so you can follow along with it. These last days, which is what we've been living in, right? These last days are, are like the fourth quarter of a game that we know the outcome. As a matter of fact, the score is so tilted, the enemy cannot catch up. There's not enough time on the clock and he doesn't have enough ability. He's scoreless as it is. He can't come back. It's the fourth quarter though, right? But you know, how many of you guys, wouldn't you like that to be the game tonight? You know, by the time we get to the fourth quarter, it's so out of hand that we can just relax. Just enjoy the fourth quarter, right? But we're still called to play the game. Game's not over yet. And if you attempt to hoist the trophy and stand gazing up at the falling confetti in some post-game moment, you're likely to get blindsided by an opponent who's still playing the game. Death is still on the field. So is sickness and disasters and disease. So is selfishness and sin-soaked social media. So is conflict and corruption. They, they are still on the field. You will encounter them in the people you walk with, in your own household, within yourself. They are still there. So when you bump into them, what do I do? Complain to God and ask for a refund? No. I fight the fight of faith. They are enemies to be put under the feet of Jesus. They are things for me to conquer in the power of the Spirit and to present them gloriously to Jesus to put his feet on them and crush them in his reign. And that's what I get to do until I get to heaven when I have no more battles to fight and no more things that don't cooperate with God. But not yet. We are not there yet. So here's how I want to pray for us. I'm going to pray for those who are here this morning that you have got God at a distance. Because you don't find him to be safe. I do not offer you a safe life today. I don't have one to offer you. I cannot offer you a safe life until your enemies and death are off the field. I just offer you a God who said, I will be with you to the end. I will get you through 
I will protect, I will, I will, I'll watch over you, I will give you what you need to fight by faith. But you're still going to feel like, I feel vulnerable. Yes, you do. If you thought Christianity in this world would mean you will no longer feel vulnerable to anything, if you thought that, you were mistaken. You live in a world with live bullets still flying. But we know the score at the end. We win. And then we have this incredible celebration and party, and there will be confetti, I'm sure, and trophies will be presented. And what a day of glory will begin as we go off into eternity to celebrate the victory and triumph of the Lamb. That day is coming, and that's what Paul was trying to help with here. That day is coming. It's not here yet, but it's helpful for us to keep that in mind as we travel through these days. Let's stand up together. the Lord just just draw near to you right now. You're you're here to engage God, to be real with him, to let him have real conversation with you. If you were to stand before God and complete this thought, this phrase, you were to say, Lord, I have a fight on my hands with blank. Fill in the blank. Lord, in my life right now, I have a fight on my hands. With what? Something on the inside, maybe? With fear or anxiety? God, I've got a fight on my hands won't give up. It won't go away. I just battling with fear and anxiety, maybe depression. Just wake up. I lack motivation. I'm having just a hard time doing life, God. Maybe it's some sinful habit or an addictive pattern. God, I've got this fight on my hand and I don't want this, but I just keep doing the same thing over and over again. You've been fighting a battle in your marriage and between things that you just can't seem to fix and things that don't seem to get fixed in your spouse. You're just in this place where it just feels like life is a war. God, I've got a fight on my hand. Just staying married. Listen, wherever you're finding your battle this morning, can you just, can you just take that to God? Don't run from him. Don't move away from him. Go and have that conversation with him right now. Take that to him and say, Lord, I do. I've got a fight on my hand in these categories. And, and I guess I had expected something different. But I see this morning, Lord, I see it clearly. It's in your word. It's always been there. This is a place in life that I have to fight still. There are enemies. There is war. God, I pray for every person who's here this morning. Lord, I pray especially for those, maybe those watching live stream. They're not here because they don't want to be too close to you. They're keeping you at a distance because they're afraid to be vulnerable. Because they've trusted you and life still was hard. And there were still battles and there were still enemies. God, I pray this morning, would you help us to see we're not out of bounds. 
We just misunderstood. God, would you bring grace into these places? Would you bring your power into these places? God, thank you that you're not some coach standing way over there on the sidelines at a distance shouting at us to do it ourselves. No, no, no. You took on flesh and blood. You entered into death. Lord, you do not do this from a distance. You come to us and you give us your life. You are near to us who call upon you. You said you would never leave us or forsake us. You empower us by the Holy Spirit. So Lord, for each of us that are in a place where we just feel like we've just stepped back from God, Lord, would you help us today to draw near to you, to trust you. Lord, there's a fight. Would you give grace to our lives? Would you empower our lives? Would you bring faith for us to stand in there in this fight? Lord, to believe that there's coming a day that this fight and that enemy is going to get put underneath your feet in victory. That could come this week or maybe next year. We don't control the time. We just want to see these enemies routed by your power and overcome in our lives, Lord. And until death is taken off the field, we have a fight. So God, thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to break out the table of contents for a group of people in the first century who probably were afraid of whatever Nero was about to do to them. They had heard. They were afraid. God, maybe we feel that way this week. God, here's what we know. You've laid this plan out. Your plan cannot fail. There's not a moment, there's not a molecule that can get outside of your control. These afflictions that are in our life story, Lord, you are in them to work an eternal weight of glory into our lives. Lord, that's the kind of control you have. They are afflictions, but you are still sovereign over them. So God, today we take shelter in this truth. God, come near to our hearts. Enable us this week. Enable us this year. God, enable us in the coming four years in our country, in our homes, in our families, in our church, to trust you in the not yet. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Bless you guys at home. Hey, don't forget, if you guys got kids and you've been saying, hey, I can't wait for children's ministry to come back next week, come join us in this service, second service, up to four years old. We've got a place for them in ministry there. Look forward to seeing you again.